not many more exciting pieces of scripture. Exodus chapter 3. Let's get stuck in. You remember Moses has, has left Egypt um, because Pharaoh has threatened to kill him. He's with his father-in-law in Midian. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, uh, the mountain of God. It's the same as Sinai. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. And Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Don't come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and at this Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of Israel's, a cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I? That I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt. And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites, just just supposing (laughs) I do what you say, and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am. I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. Go, assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt, and I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt, And say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. And after that, he will let you go. 
And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed towards this people, so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters, and so you will plunder the Egyptians. Deep breath. We carry on. Moses answered, what if they don't believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord didn't appear to you? And then the Lord said to him, what's that in your hand? A staff, he replied. And the Lord said, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake and he ran from it. And then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out, took hold of the snake. It turned back to a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. And then the Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand into his cloak. And when he took it out, the skin was leprous. It was white as snow. Now put it back into your cloak. He said, so Moses put his hand back into his cloak. And when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, if they don't believe you or pay attention to the first sign, they may believe the second. But if they don't believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. And Moses said to the Lord, this is amazing. Pardon your servant, Lord. Uh, um, I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you've spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech and tongue. Don't speak very well, Lord. And the Lord said to him, who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord, the I am who I am? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. But Moses said, pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. And then the Lord's anger burned against Moses. And he said, what about your brother, Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He's already on his way to meet you. And he will be glad to see you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you to speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you. And it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. But take this staff in your hand so that you can perform the signs with it. And then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Let me return to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. And Jethro said, Go, and I wish you well. Now the Lord had said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all those who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife, his sons, put them on a donkey, started back to Egypt. And he took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I've given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Listen to this. Israel is my firstborn son. Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me. But you refused to let him go. So I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place along the way, the Lord met Moses. Actually, says the Lord met him and was about to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you're a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. 
At that time, she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. And the Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he met Moses at the mountain of God and kissed him. And then Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent him to say, and also about all the signs he had commanded him to perform. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites, and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. And he also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. When they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. Let's pray. Father God, this is a powerful story about a powerful God and about imperfect people. In other words, it's about people like you and me and it's about precisely the same God. You spoke to Moses. We ask you to speak through your word this morning by your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. One of the questions that constantly bugs me is this. How do I live in this world, the world of everyday life, and live in in this world at the same time? Spend quite a chunk of my week in this world, and in this world God is powerful and he speaks. I've been reading Jeremiah. And he speaks words of, uh, of, of warning and he moves and, uh, and he intervenes. And then you come back into this world and everyday life that you go back into. And sometimes it doesn't seem quite the same. Well, we know God is the same. But life doesn't seem the same. How do we live in this world, this Bible world, and an everyday world? When the everyday world seems to kind of push God back into the book and shut him away. And the temptation then is to say, well, every life doesn't seem to add up to this, and I'll put it back on the shelf. Well, that's the basic challenge, I think, of the Christian life. I think that's the fundamental challenge of the Christian life, is to allow the Bible to push back. Which is to get it out, open it, understand it, uh, research it, read about it, memorise it, hear it, hear it spoken, reflect on it, etc., etc. Allow the Bible to push back. And for it to define what happens then in your everyday life. As we look in it and we see God as he really is. That's what we're trying to do. said last time, if if you're here for the first time, that uh, Jesus spoke to the 11 uh, after his resurrection. And explained all about what had happened to him in terms of the Old Testament. The law, the prophets and the Psalms. So we expect to see God in the Old Testament. We expect to see Christ in the Old Testament, this is precisely what we are doing this morning. We are allowing the Bible to push back. So that in our everyday lives we will see God more clearly, love him more dearly, follow him more nearly. Let's have a look. We're going to see God more clearly. First thing we see about God, I think, in this passage is that God is above us. Moses was tending the the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire in a bush. Moses says, okay, I'll go and see what this is about. And the Lord says, take off your sandals, you're on holy ground. Moses hit his face because he was afraid of God. God is different from us in a way that is dangerous. God is different from us in a way that is dangerous. Moses is is right to be afraid. God is holy and Moses instinctively knows 
he is not holy. So his reaction is the same as that of Isaiah. Isaiah had a, a vision of God and, and, he, uh, and he sees God in a vision in the temple and he falls to his knees and says, Whoa, to me, he says, I'm, I'm ruined. <laughs> I'm ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a, a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. God is different from us people. He is completely holy. He is all light with no darkness. It is, he is like a burning fire. He is like a flame. He purifies. And we are in danger as sinful people if we get too close. We call this God's transcendence, his otherness. He is above us. He is greater than his creation. And he is independent of it. And sin has made you combustible. In fact, we're always combustible. But what I mean by that is, as a sinner, to approach God unmediated is to be burnt. It's to be burnt. Burnt under the judgment of God. But that's not the only truth. The interesting thing is, what does God say? So God is different from us by a magnitude that we cannot comprehend. Yet what does he say? Verse 7, if you've still got your Bibles open, I have seen, I've seen the misery of my people, I have heard them crying out. I am concerned about their suffering, I have come down. Isn't that lovely? I've seen, I have heard, I am concerned, I, I have come down. That's what you want to hear God say, isn't it? I don't know what your anxieties are at the moment. Well, your worries, isn't that what you want to hear God say? I have seen, I have heard your prayer, I am concerned, I have come down. Call this God's imminence, his presence, he is with us and among us. It's a glorious thing. And our God is both above us, he is is transcendent, and he is among us, he is imminent. But when people define God for themselves, they tend to see him as either totally transcendent or, or totally imminent. So the, the God of Islam is a totally transcendent God. He is other. Um, he, is, he is distant. The God of deism is transcendent. That's, I suppose, the prevailing view in the, in the West uh, for the last few hundred years. That God is, maybe God is a creator, yes, but he's wound the world up and he, and he sets it going. Whereas the gods of mysticism, the gods of Eastern religions, so the gods of Buddhism and so on, is, is totally imminent. Either God is within us, to be found within us, or in, or in some way everything um, is divine. And maybe that's why they've started to appeal over the last decades to Westerners, for whom God is at the other end of the scale. When you define your own God, they tend to be either entirely transcendent or entirely imminent. And the God of Moses, whoops, God of Moses is both. And Tim Chester, in a very helpful book, which I suggest you buy, says we will only appreciate his amongness if we are first awed by his aboveness. We will only appreciate his amongness if we are first awed by his aboveness. I wonder, which camp do you sit into? Do you feel like God is distant? Or do you feel like Jesus is with you all the time? We have to get both those things. 
And Jesus, of course, is, is, it shouldn't surprise us then that Jesus is God above among us. He's imminent by his very name, by his very action, by his very incarnation. He is God with us. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. There are moments of transcendence in his life. He commands nature, doesn't he? He stills the storm. That shows somebody who is above creation. He raises people from the dead. Again, somebody who is above creation and as he is transfigured. But a very interesting possibility is that he's here in Exodus 3, 2. I don't know whether you noticed at the, at the beginning of the chapter, uh, the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses. It says in verse 2. And then it says in verse 4 that God called to him from within the bush. So who is it? Is it the angel of the Lord? Or is it God himself? Does that remind you of anything? Somebody who is God and yet is with God. Somebody who is God and yet is with God. Is, is, is this Jesus before his incarnation, the pre-incarnate God the Son? I think that's quite a possibility. It happens a number of times in the Old Testament. Something similar happens to Abraham. Something happens to Hagar. But we shouldn't be surprised either way, whether this is or not Jesus. And we're never, it's never spelt out in the scriptures. But that Jesus is both God above Come among. So here is Jesus in the bush. I, I got it. It was fantastic. You know, we did a little sort of graph thing in the Old Testament, the other thing, which is kind of pictorial thing. And I had so many blokes come and say that was really helpful. Okay. So just kind of, you know, some pictures for the blokes. Sorry, I'm not stereotyping anybody here this morning. Okay. But maybe this is Jesus in, in the burning bush, but here is God. Um, Transcendent God becoming imminent to Moses in the burning bush. Where does that go next? Comes a pillar of cloud, doesn't it? A pillar of fire, and it stays um, in front of the Israelites. And then when they build the tabernacle, there, of course, the pillar of cloud, pillar of fire is over the tabernacle. Where does that go next? Then under Solomon, they build the temple. Where is this going? And who is the temple in the New Testament? The person of Jesus Christ. So these pictures, maybe even the bush, presence of God amongst his people in the tabernacle, presence of God amongst his people, God. You remember there's the Holy of Holies, isn't it? This is God other, this is God transcendent. Yet in the midst of his people, what is that kind of foreshadowing? It's foreshadowing Christ. He is God transcendent in the midst of his people. Don't believe me? Here's a couple of verses. John 1, we read, The word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. And it's a word that refers to tents. <laughs> Jesus made his... Uh, John says, The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Deliberate reference back to the tabernacle. And then G, uh, Jesus, when uh, spoke about yeah, the Jews asked him, by what authority do you do these things? And Jesus said, if you destroy this temple, I'll raise it up again in three days. And they obviously laughed at that because they knew the temple had taken 40 years to build, but the temple that he'd spoken of was his body. And then, of course, you and I in Christ are temple of the Holy Spirit. But that's an aside, really. Back to the story. Catch up with my notes. Told you this was going to happen. So what does Moses say? In response to, the, to this revelation of God, I think this is how a relationship with God always starts. 
you start with a realization of his transcendence. And then the shocking realization of his imminence and the implications of what that means for you. You have to do something about it. But what God does is he calls Moses to do something. He says, the cry has reached me. I've seen what the Egyptians are doing. Now go. I'm sending you um, to Pharaoh. And this is the nature of relating to God. He calls you to do things you can't ordinarily do. So Moses asks God, who am I? That I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt. He said, who am I? You can probably hear that kind of slightly raised tone in his voice. But he's been provoked into a profound question. One that we ask ourselves, I think, consciously or unconsciously, who am I? And in generations past, you kind of, your, your identity would have been more defined by, your, uh, by locality and probably by you know, profession of your mother or, or father. So in the past, my ancestors were from the Scottish border and they followed each other into being farm labourers or possibly sheep stealers, not really entirely clear. Um, today our culture says you define who you are. Your identity is who you want to be, which of course is complete rubbish, and leaves our teens feeling ridden with anxiety that they haven't defined their identity. And Moses asks, who am I? And God's reply is, I will be with you. Which may seem like a bit of a non-answer, but actually it's profoundly the right answer. And therefore the most helpful answer, it's all Moses needs to hear. I am with you. So we call ourselves Christians. And that's because we are people defied by the presence um, of Christ. So the answer to who am I is I am with you. And so Jesus calls us to something similar, doesn't he? He says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely, listen, I am with you always to the very end of the age. So coming to know God means meeting him in his transcendence, understanding that he has come close to you, that that you are threatened. But whatever he calls you to do, the answer is I am with you. Moses asked him a second question. He says, who are you? Who are you? When I, when I go to the to Israelites and I'm just one bloke I'm, and they ask me, what is your name? What am I to say? And God replies, I am who I am. Again, it's just, it's not probably <laughs> the answer that Moses is looking for, is it? And I think it's probably deliberately ambiguous because of the way Hebrew works. It, it's kind of, it's, he says something like, God says something like, I be who I be. Is that past? In which case God is saying, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and you can define me by my track record, by what I have done. Or is it future? I will be who I will be. Uh, I'm a God who is free and I will see that get things uh, get done rightly. I'm the God who determines the future. Or is it present? I am 
who I am. I am the God who defines myself. You, you cannot define me by anything else. And you shouldn't really be surprised, should you? So Moses shouldn't kind of like expect to be able to go to the Encyclopedia Britannica. <clears throat> okay, I'm showing my age. And kind of look up the name of God and expect the encyclopedias to define him. Because otherwise then sort of the Encyclopedia Britannica becomes the kind of ultimate authority. God defines himself. He is self-defining. And, and, and this is part of what he says to Moses. And I think all these three are true. Moses, you are made in my image. Okay, that tells you something about me. It doesn't tell me, doesn't tell you everything about me. You can work backwards, yes, from the things I created. You can see that I'm created, but that will not tell you everything about me because I am the one who is self-defining. I am the one who defines you, what human beings are, and what the world is. And so you can see, you can get a hint, but you cannot define me by any of these things. And so, but God gives Moses his name, and his name is this, YHWH, or those equivalent kind of consonants in Hebrew. So there in verse 14, God says, I am who I am. This is what you ought to say, I am. I am has sent me to you. And I'm not going to go into this in detail this morning. Hebrew is written in consonants, and you kind of like, the, the vowels aren't put in. So you have to kind of guess the vowels or understand the vowels. And some of the texts of the Bible then have had later vowels um, put in. But, it, but God's name is these four consonants. And we have it in our Bible as Lord in small capitals. Have you ever used the small caps font, you know, the four in, in, in Word, Microsoft Word? You ever discovered the small caps font? You're looking really blank at me. So you see, you don't know what I'm, you see. But look here in verse, verse 15, Exodus 3, verse 15. Turn it up. It won't work on the screen. You have to look in, in your Bibles. There we have the Lord. And you see it, well, you can see it here. That's small caps. It's got a big L. It's all capitals, but one of them is bigger than the other. And whenever you see that name Lord in the Bible, in the Old Testament, it means this name of God which is Yahweh, or something like that. In the past, they called it Jehovah. But this is God's name. I think it's a shame that, we, that we've lost God's name, and in a sense, we've got, a, we've got a title instead, which is the Lord. So when you read that, you have to remember backwards, God is Yahweh. He, he has a name, and his name is I Am, which is glorious and mysterious and awesome. And so when God, when the plagues come and God challenges the gods of Egypt, they all have names. There's Happy, the, the Nile god. There's Osiris, was another Nile god. There was a frog god called Heket. They all have names. Uh, there was a, uh, the mother and sky god was resembled, resembled a bull. And so when the, you know, the plague comes against livestock, we'll talk about this more later on. They all have names for those gods. And, and God repeatedly says, and you'll read it if you read this through, then you will know that I am the Lord. And for us it reads like a title, doesn't it? Then you'll know that I'm powerful or something or that I'm boss. But actually what it means is then you will know that I am Yahweh. That I am who I am. Go after me quickly, aren't we? Right.
So three things I just want you to think about God's name. And they come out of this passage, but you'll have to read it for yourself. By calling himself Lord, I am who I am. God is telling Moses that he is sovereign God. He is God above us. He can do what he like, what he's decided to do. God can deliver. By calling himself Lord, he adds a promise to it. It's the same promise that he gave to Abraham. He is saying that he is covenant Lord, covenant Yahweh. He has promised to deliver. So he can deliver. Uh, he will deliver. He is everlasting Lord. He goes on forever from generation to generation. So his love and his care never wear out um, or, or come to an end. So interestingly, and this is why Jesus was accused of blasphemy. John chapter 8, he said, Very truly I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. And he uses the name of God. And this covenant, this promise is signed with blood. Later on we get to Exodus 24. And Moses takes blood and and he sprinkles uh, the people. And they say, we will do everything the Lord has said. And Moses said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. In accordance with all these words. And Jesus said, this is the blood of a new covenant. So the only question then is, is whether... If God reveals to you in his transcendence, but also his imminence, the question is whether you're going to believe it or not. Moses is worried that his people won't believe him. God gave him three signs. We read those. The staff that becomes a snake, the hand that becomes leprous, uh, the Nile that becomes blood. I don't know whether there's any significance. The first two are reversible. It's almost like, if you trust me, then this staff that becomes a snake, this threat goes away. Uh, um, with the hand, it's almost like if you trust me, then uh, the threat goes away. The third one doesn't. It's, uh... But the Israelites believed to start with. You can read that. Um, right at the very end, wasn't it? I think. Lost it now. Anyway, you can find that. More interestingly, though, really, Moses. Does Moses believe? Well, yeah, kind of, but does he believe enough to open his mouth? No. Of course, you find through the story, Moses does speak when he's seen God act, but at the beginning, does he speak enough? No, not enough to open his mouth. I wonder whether you feel like that. I believe, but really not enough to open my mouth. Equally, another thing he's done is he's not put his faith into action. And that's why we get this emergency circumcision. Which sounds worrying, doesn't it? In in chapter 4, for all the things we don't know, and there's lots we don't know about what's going on in that passage, it's clear that Gershom, Moses' son, has not been circumcised. So whatever else has happened to Moses, has not put his faith into practice. Circumcision is this sign of the covenant. It's a sign that they're people of the promise. And he's not done it. He's not circumcised Gershom. Zipporah understands. We don't know how she understands, but she does. And what it means is knowing God has consequences. And Moses hasn't got there yet. He's met him in transcendence and and imminence. He's been commissioned by God, but he hasn't worked through his new identity. God has chosen him. God is going to rescue through him. And therefore, he's going to give these people a new identity. And God does that for you. He chooses you. He rescues you. He, He gives you a new identity. But that new identity then has implications. 
You are a chosen people. Okay? Implications, you are God's alone. A royal priesthood. You're treated by God, it's so special. You're his royal priest, but that means you've got work to do. About ministering God to one another and talking to people about Christ. You're God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him. So Moses has to walk this out, and he hasn't discovered that yet. And sometimes we discover we haven't discovered that yet, or we've got a way to go. What about Pharaoh? Well, Moses is warned Pharaoh's going to harden his heart. There's no neutral ground. No neutral ground. Unbelief has a consequence. And at the end of that, we read that Israel is God's firstborn son. He calls Israel my firstborn son. Why does he do that? And the price of Pharaoh's unbelief is his firstborn son. When it comes time for that judgment to be enacted, we discover that actually neither Israel nor Egypt are, are, are holy in God's sight, holy enough to escape the destroying angel. The destroyer only passes across the Israelites because they've painted the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of their houses. It's a picture that they don't understand yet. Israel, trust, trust the blood of the lamb and the, and the destroyer passes by. It's a picture that really only we understand in its fullness, that the only effective sacrifice for sin is God's firstborn. His only son. His only son. His only begotten son, God's firstborn son. Gives up. There's a sacrifice to a death so that his blood, what does it do? Causes the destroyer to walk past. Causes God's judgment to walk by. So they trust in the blood of the lamb and God counts it as faith in Christ. Looking forwards. I want us to move on. Sorry, I rushed a bit. I'm going to pass that by. What have we learned? God is above us in dangerous holiness. Dangerous holiness that burns sinners. We should bow down in, in worship and, and confession. God is among us. And he says to you today, I have seen, I have heard, I am concerned, I have come down. Not some petty God of the Egyptians, not some God of materialism. God of things. Not the God of self, but the God who is I am. Who I am. Has seen, has heard, is concerned. He's ready to intervene. 
He's sovereign Lord. I am. He's the Lord. That should be Lord in small caps, you see. Typo. He is sovereign Lord. Above. He is covenant Lord. Among. Forever. You believe it or you don't believe it. Price for unbelief is death. Price of forgiveness is the firstborn. 